Well, good evening. My name is Michael Fitzpatrick, and the topic this evening is philosophy and individuality. Transcending the limits of the ego is the subtitle for it. So we're going to have a look at what individuality is as against what we normally see it to be. And I'd like to begin by the proposition that the individual is perfect. In the play Hamlet, Shakespeare describes man as what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. He's talking about you. So he gives this description of man as being an amazing entity. And it gives us an indication of the true stature of a human being. And it's I would suggest far in excess of anything that we would ascribe to ourselves. I mean, how many of us consider ourselves to be infinite in faculties? Some of us might consider ourselves to be the beauty of the world. But, you know, again, how noble in reason. So these are the attributes of a human being at its full reach. Now, because man is of such immense stature, we can only find satisfaction in realizing that universal potential. And I'd like now to maybe just divert and look at the universe for a while. I just spoke about individual or man as an individual. And I'd now like to look at the universe as an entity. And you can look at the universe at four levels. One is at the level of essence. And in the school of philosophy, when we talk about essence, we talk about the absolute or God or consciousness. And what is proposed is that that alone is real. And that that is the underlying substance or the essence of the universe and that the universe is in fact a play in consciousness. So the consciousness is everywhere, pervades everything, and if you really analyze anything, if you look at an apple or any other object and analyze it in depth, you will come to the conclusion, finally, that what it is is consciousness. So we could look at the universe then as being consciousness, just that alone. And that would be at the level of essence. The second level then you can look at the universe is at the causal level. And this is the level where causes or laws are held. And again, you could describe the universe as a play governed by the will of the Absolute, 
And in simple terms, the law or rules at this level is that bliss, health, freedom, and prosperity be available to all. So this is the, the causal substance of the universe. All are under this law, and all are moved by it. And an example of this is that everyone, in every situation, is always searching for happiness. So when you back horses or drink Budweiser or whatever you do, in fact, what you're doing is you're searching for this happiness governed by this rule or this law at the causal level. Now, what you do might be erroneous because reason isn't operating very well, so what you pick to pursue happiness may not lead you to it. But one way or the other, we are all motivated by this happiness. And this is the will of the Absolute moving everybody. So all the beings in this room are being moved. And the third level then is to look at the universe at the level of mind. So you could think of it like in terms of substances, very, very fine substance being consciousness, a slightly coarser substance being the causal level, and then again at another level then you have mind as a substance. And with regard to mind, Ralph Waldo Emerson, an American philosopher, in an essay called The Universal in Man, said that there is one mind common to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same. He that has once admitted to the right of reason is made a free man of the whole estate. What Plato has thought he may think, what a saint has felt he may feel, what at any time has befallen any man he can understand. Who hath access to this universal mind is a part to all that is or can be done. For this is the only and sovereign agent. And then he says, of the universal mind, each individual man is one more incarnation. All its properties consist in him. So again, we're looking at mind as being one mind, a, a sort of a universal substance which permeates everybody. And finally, at the physical level of the universe, you could analyze any thing in the universe. Or if you, say if you take a lump of earth and you'll find it's made up of universal elements. So really you don't have a sort of an individual lump of earth. You've got universal elements manifesting as a lump of earth or maybe manifesting as a car or manifesting as a human being at the physical level. So once you get a sense of this unity, then in a way 
individuality as a separate thing seems to disappear. So what is presumed to happen to an individual is really happening among universal elements. So you could look at the universe and say there are no individuals. There are just aspects of the universal. So you could say there's one substance consciousness, one will or one law, one universal mind, and universal elements making up all the bodies or entities in the creation. So with no trace of individuality other than the appearance of it. So now we've got a problem. Can't really talk about individuality anymore now that we've got rid of it. But to take it a little further then, the word universe is made up of the word unus or unity and uersus, which means turn. So it's like turned into one. And then individual comes from the word indivisible. So again, you have this unity in both cases. So what is the relationship then of this so-called individual to the universal? And I'd like to read out an answer to this question, which was given by Sri Shankaracharya, who is a sage to whom the school put questions from about 1961 until his death. So this was an answer he gave which described how individuals come into being. And he said, every objective effect is the result of certain causes and causes are all universal. In fact, the same self is in the individuals and the universals. Just as the sun may be seen simultaneously shining in thousands of pots filled with water, each may seem like the sun, but the sun does not seem like thousands only because it is seen in thousands of pots. Similarly, all separate things are mere reflections of one single unity. To presume that such and such a thing happens to the individual is mere appreciation of the reflection, whereas it is in reality happening at the level of universal. So that's what he said. And then he goes on to say, if you take the human body analogy, the universe is the body and the individual is like a limb. So if you take this body as representing the universe, then the finger would represent an individual. So you could have a finger or a left eye or whatever and being an aspect of this universal. So in truth, it is an aspect of the universal 
which is the entire body. Now, it definitely has individuality and it definitely has its function, but it cannot be separated from the universe. So if you separate a part of the body from the body, as a whole it withers and dies. And in the same way the individual then is contained in and is part of the universal. And in essence separation from the universal leads to withering and death. So you can't separate an individual from the universe. It is in fact a part of it and a part not in the sense we normally think of a part as being separate but an aspect of it like the finger is an aspect of the body. I can't really cut off this finger and put it in a matchbox and expect it to function. It's a part of the body but it is integral with it. So that's the essence of what I'm going to talk about tonight. But then there is another thing which happens is that we get a false sense of individuality. I think you would agree with me that what I have described as individuality is not what we normally, if I asked you to write an essay on individuality I don't think you would in the first five minutes come up with what I've said. Maybe a little while later you would. The initial sense of individual is something separate. So when I'm going to talk tonight about false individuality then I'm going to use the word ego if I may. So how does this make its appearance? And uh, the essence of it really is that the individual is a reflection of the universal and if the reflective surface is clear then the individual will reflect the universal very clearly but if that in the individual which is reflecting is dull it will reflect badly. So it says that those who are clear and brilliant are fortunate to reflect the universal through their individual being and others seem to have forgotten. And it said that the forgetfulness is caused by little ideas which we hold about ourselves. So in order to form an ego what is done is that the individual collects a number of ideas, small little ideas, and creates a circle and calls himself individual. Does that make sense? So a number of ideas are collected and held, ideas about myself. Now, With the creation then of this limited circle, if I said to you, how big are you? I think the likelihood is that one would give a limited answer. One might say, well, I'm 
this big or whatever. Whatever the answer is, it is likely to be some sort of a circle. It's contained within a limit. Now, what can happen then is that as this limit or this circle is created, there can be a forgetting of the universal, which is within us. And with that forgetting, what will happen is that the circle can become smaller and smaller. And it could come to the stage, in fact it often does come to the stage, where one would find oneself lonely. And at that stage the individual becomes opposed to the universal. So at that stage you need help. This is what happens. We forget the universal in us. We forget that we are aspects of the universal. We form a circle which we call ourselves. And that circle can get smaller. And the only way out then is really to get help, to find out why is this enormous potential being constricted into a narrow circle. Now, with help, there can be a movement again from this limited individual or this false individual to the universal. And this movement is marked by two factors, or there are two hallmarks of it. The first is that as this movement takes place, the individual has fewer desires. So a sign of movement to becoming universal is a reduction in shopping. Shopping declines as you become more universal. And not only that, but another amazing phenomenon is that one becomes lit with bliss and satisfaction. That sounds like a contradiction. You have less shopping and more bliss and satisfaction. So all the ladies are going to leave now. <laughs> This is the essence of it, really, that as one enjoys this larger appreciation of oneself, desires decrease, and one becomes more full of bliss and satisfaction. So, sounds worthwhile. Now, having forgotten the universal nature this individual ends up with problems, like you or I. We end up with, once we forget our universal nature, we become associated with certain problems by virtue of this false isolation. And the type of things that happen is that you can well end up with a problem such as, my life seems to have little or no purpose. Or you could have, nobody cares about me. You could have that. Or you then have the phenomenon that we worry about who will look after us when we are old. Or another phenomenon then is I have too much to do. Or I'm not really doing what I want to do. And these are very much problems associated with forgetting our universal self. Now the true individual on the other hand expresses the universal through the particular.
the false individual claims for himself. So on the one hand, you have, when there's a recognition or a, or a memory of what I truly am, then there's an expression of universal in particular events. Whereas the false individual is continuously counting the cost, claiming. And having settled for the small and limited, he cuts himself off from the universal and has to make do with the limited. So life becomes mundane. And then, because we have this enormous potential, even in our limited view of ourselves, we are still striving to be large. So you get typical egos expressing themselves in various ways. One such way is a desire to be special rather than ordinary. I don't know if you recognize this. I think we would like to be special. I have yet to meet somebody who wants to be ordinary. So we do things like we paint our hall door a different color from everybody else's. Or as my son has done on numerous occasions, we get alloy wheels for our car. You know, you have this very ordinary car, but the wheels are unbelievable. <laughs> but this is a bit worrying, so you don't want to be too special. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You'd like to be special, but you wouldn't want to be too special. Some might, but you're, you're not going to dye your hair pink just to be special. Although my son did it once again. It's the other son. <laughs> so we're a bit like pop stars. We want people to notice us, and yet we want plenty of space and be left alone. We'd like to be sort of famous on the one hand, but then left alone so that we can have space. Now, the opposite of that then, though, is that the true universal or the true expression of individuality is to be universal rather than special. So rather than having a desire to be special, it would be more appropriate to express universal attributes. So if you take a great artist, such as a Shakespeare or a Mozart, what makes them unique is their universality. So in other words, their music or their literature has this timeless quality which appeals to all ages. And that's an attribute of, of universal music or universal literature. It has a timeless quality. It will last. So it appeals to all generations. Now, another aspect of this false individuality or, or egoism is what we call identification, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. But it comes from id and entity, which is id stands for your true self, and entity is anything. So this tendency to associate what I am with something is another aspect of this false individuality. And this is very common. So I think to some degree, unless you're very mature and wise, 
when you come back after the tea break, you will tend to think that that chair is yours. And if that person sits in that chair, there's going to be trouble. Identification takes place very readily. He says, my car, my chair. And this, again, in a funny way, is limiting what we are by identifying it with a chair. So you could have a situation where somebody would get very annoyed about a chair, extremely annoyed about a chair. And that's called identification. We identify with our bodies. So we say, I am very good looking, or I'm getting old, or whatever. We identify with our minds. So we say, I'm very clever, or even worse, we say, I'm very stupid. We say, I'm confused, or I'm clear. So we identify with the body, with the mind. We even go so far as to identify with our heart. So we say, I am happy, I am sad, I am jealous. Gets worse, we identify with the dog. We talk about my dog, my solicitor, and in a funny way, nothing escapes this identification or claiming. And when you add all the things that you've claimed and put it all together, then you've got this false identity. It's a big collection of little things which we associate ourselves with. Now, a funny thing, though, is we've got very confused ideas about this ego or this false identity. Like we're very attached to the chair or to the dog or to the house or whatever. But then we take somebody like Mother Teresa and we say, what a fantastic person. We admire her lack of ego, the fact that she doesn't claim things and she has lived a life of, of simplicity without claiming things. And we say that's absolutely, unbelievably fantastic. And at the same time, we said, just watch my chair. Don't, don't, don't go near my chair. This false identity is a bit complex. So another thing then about this false identity is that it's very serious. I remember many years ago in the School of Philosophy, you could get worried if a group was serious. And I remember somebody saying to me that the only thing that ever gets serious is the ego. And it had a transformative effect, because then I realized that seriousness is not a valid condition. You don't have to take anybody seriously, because seriousness is a quality of the ego. The true universal person is light, bright, and simple. So, if you're not light, if you're not bright, and you're not simple, <laughs> there is work to be done. Now, you could say that, in fact, it's very valid to be serious, because the opposite of seriousness is to be silly. And that's not true, because the opposite of to being silly is to be reasonable. So, seriousness never has anything to do with reasonableness. Seriousness never has anything to do with reasonableness. In fact, the reasonable person is light, bright, and simple. So, you get light, bright, and simple, and reasonable. You get seriousness and ego. 
I'm sure you'll have questions about that later on. A few more examples of identification. The case where the father goes to the nativity play at Christmas uh, to see his son who has got a small part. In fact, the young boy is playing the part of one of the sheep. I wouldn't laugh at this, it's very important. In fact, he's not even a senior sheep, he's a, he's a little sheep. And he's, at, in fact, a furthest away from the crib. But for Daddy, the whole play is about sheep. <laughs> I mean, there's a little baby in the cradle over there somewhere, but Dad, it's over here. Like, look at those sheep. So what happens is that with this identification, you get distorted values. Just like the chair becomes very significant. You get this distorted value with identification. So rather than seeing a play about Jesus, you get a play about sheep. So that's what happens with identification. Ego is also very biased. And again, when you identify with a football team, you've no problem watching the team you love playing. Well, let's assume you love Manchester United, but when they're playing, you're interested in football. But, you know, when Leeds are playing, you couldn't be bothered watching. So it's the team you identify with that you watch. So this is the ego, the false sense of individuality. It's a collection of claims and identifications. And this is the interesting point. It covers our true potential and our birthright. And it would be very useful if we could get a sense of how restricting this false sense of ourself is. And it would be very useful if we could get a glimpse or increase the glimpse we have of our true underlying potential so that we begin to drop these false claims and identifications and allow our unlimited potential to re-emerge and, as I've said before, the delightful thing is that as this true individuality emerges, there's going to be less shopping and there's going to be more bliss. So, it's well worthwhile. So, what can we say about a true individual? Now, a true individual is one who never forgets the universal and applies the universal to the particular. Such a person has unity of purpose, albeit specialization of function. And an example of this is that if you take the finger or the eye in relation to the body, the purpose is the well-being of the body. So it's the one purpose for all the individual elements in the body, but each has a special function. So a person who is remembering their true stature will have this universal purpose but specialization of function. In the book Good Company, there's a reference to this specialization of function. And it says, there is something in all of us, every one of us, which is special or outstanding. 
So there's something in every one of us here, everyone, everywhere, which is special and outstanding. And I think this gives you a, a sort of a sense that for every individual, there's unity of purpose, but there is the specialization of function. We each have something special or outstanding about us. It goes on to say, one should try to please God or serve God or worship God as the case may be with that attribute in which he chiefly excels. This is the path of least resistance. It is sure to work. So that's interesting that each individual has a special function. So how do you realize this true or universal individuality in your good self? Now we have lots of examples in history of men who have climbed the heights. You've got Socrates, you've got Shakespeare, Martin Luther King Jr., and many other people, Mother Teresa, people like this. How did these people approach universality? One thing can be said really is that the person with a larger view has vision. And I'd like to talk for a few minutes about vision. It's said that there are five levels of vision, or five categories of vision. And these are said to be the individual, the family, the nation, humanity, and the universe. So it's said that really you can operate at the level of individual, so your vision can be one of the individual. So you look at everything and see how it relates to me. So that would be vision at the level of individual. You're always looking out for yourself. The next level then was the level of family. So you would have a, a larger vision. So you, you would look at life caring for, you know, two or three people and a dog type of thing or whatever the case may be then you'd have quite a big jump. If you looked at life from the point of view of the nation, so whatever was important to the nation would be important to you. Now, the in interesting thing is that the larger vision always contains the smaller vision. So a man who looks after the nation, if he truly does it, has to look after his family. Larger than that, again, then would be to look at humanity, which would, would have a bigger vision again. And the ultimate or final level of vision would be the universe. So again, what would be very useful is to have this in mind, to keep expanding one's vision. If you look at life from the larger picture, you will always look after the smaller picture. And the other chances that you'll be lighter, brighter, and more simple, and that you'll have greater bliss because they actually go together. Now, so the, the larger the vision, the more all under that vision are protected by good decisions. All the scriptures direct the human being to the larger vision or to the largest vision.
in my experience, a good way to increase your vision is seek out people with bigger vision. Look for people who have a big vision and hang around with them. It's contagious. Now, one of the things that we're given is we're given gifts or equipment to allow us to realize our universal potential. And it's said that these gifts are reason, love, and free will. Through reason, one can comprehend the universe. With love, you can embrace the universe. And free will then allows us to choose our destiny or to deny it. So you're able to decide between true and false, appropriate and inappropriate. And in this way, one can transcend and change one's individual nature. So through reason, love, and free will, one can work to transcend the smaller, to realize the larger. Just talking then about applying the universal to the particular, and this unity of purpose with specialization of function, in case this is not very obvious, there is this story, I think Henry George has it in the book, Progress and Poverty. He talks about the Savannah story. And from this you can get a sense of how unity of purpose and specialization of function benefits everybody. So you imagine a vast country with no occupants. Settlers begin to arrive in the country and one family comes to a very large valley and settles down there. Now these people were farmers, so they can grow food for thousands. But not being builders, they live in a, a makeshift shack. Their clothes are crude, and they're prone to disease. But they eat like kings. And then another family arrives, and they used to be house builders. They probably came from Ireland, they're house builders. And they can build houses for thousands. And what happens is that they meet the other people, the farmers, and they say, we'll build houses for you if you will give us of your surplus food. So then what you have is that both families eat well, and have great houses. But they still dress rather badly, and they're still prone to illness. And what happens is that somebody then arrives, probably from Italy, and they make beautiful clothes. And so then the same exchange takes place. Each person specializes in their function, but they have this unity of purpose. So again, they share the food, the houses and the clothing, and everybody thrives. And then a doctor arrives, or a, a family with, with a medical background. And what happens is that through this specialization of function, the whole community is much, much richer and wealthier than without that specialization of function. So you can begin to see that if you have unity of purpose and specialization of function, everybody thrives. 
another way of looking at how the individual may expand is that we all have a natural surplus. You may not think you do, but we all have a natural surplus. And again, this is our special talent. So a cow has a natural surplus of milk. And, you know, bees have a natural surplus of honey. And trees have a natural surplus of fruit. And each of us has a natural surplus of something. I'm not going to ask you what it is. But we do have some capacity to provide something to the universe. So now that we have something that we can offer the universe, how are you going to find out what it is? This is, I think, where you've got to work at it. So I think there's a tendency to believe that we have very little to offer. You know, just about enough to keep going. You know. But the, the interesting thing is that the why say is that we each of us have something special to offer. And I think you can also say that from what has been said so far is that every one of us has unlimited potential. So how can you tap into that? Well, there are a few suggestions that you might consider to try and identify what is this quality that you have that's special that you can offer. One thing is to look at people you admire, sort of great people that you admire. You know, do you admire somebody like Nelson Mandela and his love of freedom? Or a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Mother Teresa? If you pick somebody whose qualities you truly admire. I think what you'll find is that what you admire in that person is in fact your own qualities. When you admire qualities in somebody else, the, the truth is that those qualities are in you. So pick somebody that you admire, somebody exceptional in your view, and try and identify what their qualities are. And I think you'll find that that's a quality which is very attractive to you because it's in you. Now, getting a little bit more morbid, you could sit down this evening and compose your own gravestone, what you would like to have written on your gravestone. So, you know, here lies Michael. <laughs> You know, he was, <laughs> whatever it was. So what you would like people to remember you for, again, that might draw out that special quality which you have to offer and which you may not be offering because you feel some limited in some way. Now, so those are two suggestions as, as to how you might tap into your uh, special gift or attribute which you can offer to the family, or to the nation, or to humanity, or to the universe. You can go as big as you like. The bigger, the better. In fact, the bigger, the happier you'll be. Interestingly enough, there's a lovely prayer which expresses uh, this unity of purpose in a devotional way. And it has been said that the wise wake up with this on their lips each morning. I presume with this in their heart each morning, the essence of it. And it goes like this, that all be happy, 
all be without disease. All creatures have well-being and none be in misery of any sort. So working with one's special attribute, this would be a fantastic way to express unity of purpose. This would be vision at the very highest level. All be happy, not just Irish people or whatever. All be without disease. All creatures have well-being and none be in misery of any sort. So that's the essence of what I have to say. Really, the individual is an expression of the universal and is not separate from it. Each individual has something special to offer the universe. And the key is unity of purpose and specialization of function. So, it would be good if we consider these things and remember that all should be happy, all should be without disease, all should have well-being, and none should be in misery of any sort. So let that be the vision. And when you come back after the break, don't worry who's on your chair. Thank you very much. So, do you have any questions? No. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you mentioned earlier on saying that there will be a question, what is reasonable? And reasonable person, and also what is reasonable in, in terms of the, what is reasonable in the individuality? What's the difference between those two? What is the difference between reasonable and individuality? Yes. You don't have any easier questions now? <laughs> no, no, that's fine. The essence for a human being really is to look to this larger picture. I think the, the larger the view that one has, the more reasonable will be the behavior or the action. So you could look at reasonable in that sense. So it is unreasonable to put my welfare in front of the welfare of my family. Or it's unreasonable to put my welfare before the welfare of the community. Because if you appreciate that we are aspects of the universal, or say we are aspects of the community at a smaller level, if you do something which is to my benefit, but is detrimental to the community, it is in effect detrimental to me. Does that make sense? So the reasonable behavior will always take the larger view, and by doing that which is good for the larger, will ensure that it's good for the individual. So in other words, you wouldn't um, take your finger and spend a fortune on it and forget to have your dinner. So you might have a lovely manicured finger, but, you know, the body gives up. So in the same way, reasonable for the individual is to take the larger view so that there's unity of purpose.
but that's honored. I hope that goes in some way to answer the question. Is there a basic contradiction in there? You talk in terms of if one expands the vision to take in the bigger, as in, say, the community or the... Or the, the yes. Can that be distorted, though, as in the case, as history has sort of shown us, that in the case of things like the Chinese Mao Zedong, for instance, where his vision would be large, but the individual would suffer, perhaps? And that could be, you could quote similar cases in history, like Hitler or Pol Pot, you know, where they have a bigger vision, and yet individuals can suffer on a huge scale. Yes, absolutely, yes. What you can have is, I suppose, what one might call a megalomaniac. In other words, somebody who raises themselves up to be God, if you want to put it that way. So in other words, they take it on themselves rather than serve the nation or the country. They take it on themselves to decide what is best. In other words, that the country would serve their view as to what should be done. I think that would be a distorted view of vision. So like the true vision really w would be consistent with the good of all. I gave you this little prayer that all be happy, all be without disease, etc. So I, I think you can always check to see if your vision is worthwhile to see if it is consistent with happiness for all. Otherwise, ego can creep in and one can decide that, well, I know best, but it, it has a contradiction in it. So the, I suppose the, the key really then is to have a big vision and also humility at the same time. And that is possible. I mean, it may, it may sound a contradiction, but to have a big vision, but a big vision of service. So you, you take a mother, Teresa would have a big vision. It wouldn't be sort of exploiting people. I think it's a valid point that with this large vision, there's a need for humility or a lack of claim. This claim can come in and, and that distorts the expansion. And I think that's something one has to watch for. You know, if you have a big vision for your children or something, you have to be careful that your big vision isn't something you just want It'll make me feel good if they do that. It needs to be a big vision without a claim. All right. Hello. Can you say a bit more about this idea of the surplus that each of us as individuals have and how we then tap into this surplus to find out what the purpose yes. is and how we can contribute? Yes. Thank you. Well, there is this, what's described as a natural surplus. So each of us has more than we need for ourselves. I mean, I think one can identify this in terms of, you may well ask, what surplus do I have? You know, in other words, you could sort of list out things that you would see the community is needing, or your family needing, or society in general needing. And list out things that the society needs. It'd be an interesting exercise just to list out, say, the ten most important things that society needs. And see if you have a surplus of those. In other words, if you said it was generosity, for example, just, you know, have I only enough generosity to keep myself going? Does that make sense? Or you might sort of list out that the community or the society needs kindness and sort of say, 
how much kindness do I have? I mean, the interesting thing is, I think if you ask the question, I think the answer is going to be fairly obvious, that you have surpluses in a number of areas. One has a natural surplus. Now, you may find that there's a particular, and I think there is a particular quality in which you excel. And I think, really, it's worth looking to see what that is. And I gave a few suggestions. If you were to ask yourself, what is the quality that I admire most? If you took, again, a number of people and sort of said, what is the inherent quality that makes me really attracted to that person? I think you'll find that is a quality which you have. So is that all right? Yeah, very good. Anyone else? Why is there such a, a lack of unity and a lack of vision in the world at the moment? Is, is there a particular reason? And, and is it more prevalent now than it would have been, say, 50 years ago? I was very young 50 years ago. <laughs> well, I can only speak uh, from the sense one has uh, that with growing prosperity, you can very readily get a growth in selfishness, where you have less, quite often, people are much more willing to share. I remember when I was growing up that there was much more of a sense of sharing in the community. I come from the country that in the south of Ireland but there would be a much more willingness for people to share farm equipment and things like that to help one another or somebody had a problem. And I think as you get more prosperous, there is this concept of being independent and totally self-sufficient can easily come in. And I think that's a, a mistaken view which can arise from prosperity. In other words, that if I cover my mortgage and I have my house and I have my own space and I have my pension covered, I'm absolutely independent. You know, so don't worry about anyone else. Make sure I'm all right. And I think that can come well with prosperity. Interestingly enough, I think it leads to a downfall in prosperity because really prosperity comes from this sharing. So if you take the Savannah story, the prosperity arises because of this unity of purpose in people. So as a, a society becomes more individual in the small sense, as people look after themselves at any cost, well then I think the society will suffer. So you certainly see it in Dublin at the moment, that there's a sort of a move to get rid of inefficiencies in certain areas, but the vested interested parties would oppose this very strongly. They do not want their vested interest to be upset. So they don't really sort of look to what's in the best interest of everyone and then make a sacrifice. In fact, I think we'd be very surprised if people did that now because we expect them to fight for their vested interest regardless of the larger picture. So uh, to some degree, I think it's a, a problem which comes with prosperity. And I think really it calls for this expanded vision you know, I think it's going to be some sort of spiritual movement that will allow for expansion and prosperity without this claim for little me. All right. Thank you. With worldwide communication, we are now more aware of poverty in the world. You talked earlier about, although I missed part of it, an individualism and Rain said about a surplus. What about somebody who's sick and dying and who's poverty-stricken? What surplus do they have to give? What do they have to offer? You're talking about community sharing, but what about a person who is 
like on their last legs, so to speak, and children of Rio, people have so little, but is there a surplus? I'm asking the opposite. It's a very difficult question to answer because the way you frame the question is you're postulating somebody who has nothing. So the very way you ask the question, you're sort of saying to me, what about somebody who has absolutely nothing? What can they offer? So you have really defined the situation and you're now asking me to say, well, I'm telling you about somebody who has nothing, what can they offer? I don't think that's a true situation in experience. I think you would have to look to real experience. I think you can find poor people who have a lot more to offer than rich people. So I think the things you can offer are your very inherent qualities, such as love, such as experience, such as generosity of being. You could have a person who is dying, they haven't an ounce of energy left in their body, but they've lived a very good life and, you know, in their dying breath, they give advice to their best beloved. And it might be a very short sentence, but it could be a profound direction. So I think the riches are inherent in us. The spiritual riches are the real riches, you know, whether you've got 50 euro or 50 pounds sterling or whatever. The physical riches are the least of riches. So you could have a very poor, sick person who was very wealthy and has a lot to give. And it might be just a sentence, you know. Does that make sense? I would like to ask you about something that I think you touched on and if you could elaborate on it a little. I think you mentioned just in passing about the line of least resistance and I think it was with regards to if we're looking for a direction or a purpose or that to go and that, that maybe I misunderstood you but that, but that the line of re least resistance was maybe a good indication. Could you elaborate on that and if I pick you up right on that? I can't remember using the words line of least resistance. Or least resistance. Oh yes, there was a quotation. I'll just get the quotation. Each should try to please God or serve God or worship God as the case may be with that attribute in which he chiefly excels. So to serve with the attribute in which you chiefly excel. He says, this is the path of least resistance. So it's not a matter of choosing the path of least resistance. It's a matter of serving with that attribute with which you chiefly excel. That, that is the path of least resistance. So don't take the path of least resistance. <laughs> Serve with that special attribute which you particularly have. It's very interesting really, you know, if you could leave here this evening with a feeling that you do have a special attribute, every one of us. I think it's well worth looking on the basis that each of us has a special attribute. We do have something particular to offer the universe.
that in fact is the reason why we were here. It is not a mistake that you're here. Nobody made a mistake. It might look like it, <laughs> it might feel like it, but you actually have something special to offer. And if you do your best to look to see what is that attribute and follow that, then that is the path of least resistance. I think our normal least resistance is do as little as you can. Very good. You're welcome. Yes? Will following the path of least resistance then help get rid of our, our notions of our ego and our attachments and things like that? You know, that you say our chair and things, will that, and our opinions and ideas of ourselves, by following our specialities, will that help dispel then all those ideas that we have about ourselves? It's described as an expansion. We tend to have a false sense of being limited. So we operate within a small circle. Now, if you begin to understand that each of us is an aspect of the universal with a special attribute or a specialization of function, now, through aiming to serve the larger universe, what happens is that this circle expands. Now, a typical example of it would be is that when you come back after the tea break and you see that your man is sitting on your chair, reason begins to operate and you say, well, his chair is now free. So there's this generosity comes in and reason begins to operate more. The bigger the vision, the more reason operates. But the more you expand your vision, the less threatened you are at one level and the more you can sort of work out simple things like, you know, there's only 42 of us in the room and there's 45 chairs, so there must be a chair. So you don't panic. <laughs> you don't kill for a chair, you know? So that expansion naturally takes place with this desire to have a bigger view. And what happens, I mean, I, I said it jokingly to a degree, but with this expansion comes a lessening of desire, so one becomes more secure in oneself. And also one enjoys greater satisfaction and bliss. And this is a self-sustaining expansion. The reward of expansion of view is a decrease in need and an increase in satisfaction and bliss, which then fuels a, a desire for greater expansion. And, uh, I mean, the interesting thing is that once this sort of desire is ignited, then one begins to realize that one has potential, and then one allows it to expand. So I just to go back maybe to something that's been said before in relation to the individual and uh, suffering. You talked a lot tonight about bliss and light, yes. bright and simple and so on. The world, of course, is those things, but it's also suffering. And you can see that on an individual and on a national level. Just maybe, is there anything else you want to say on that, in terms of how we come to terms with the reality of suffering as part of human experience, but also life's experience on the earth? I suppose just to go back to the light, bright and simple side of things, that with an expansion of vision, We've talked about two things. One, a lessening of desires, and then uh, an increase in, in satisfaction and bliss. So that is how suffering is decreased, if you want to take it from a personal point of view.
you'll find if, if you want to take it from the internal viewpoint, a lot of your suffering is your own. You know, you may blame other people for it, but a lot of it is because you're trying to contain something very, very large in a very small box. And it's, it's very painful. Now, a lot of the pain can be released through expansion. Get a bigger box. Now, the other thing which I think you'll find in practice is that when the individual is frustrated or is not realizing his potential, there's a tendency to inflict pain on other people. So quite a lot of pain is inflicted because of living in small boxes. So the more you can encourage all to realize their full potential, the, the more the suffering will decrease. You can't put a man in a small box and, and expect him to be uh, content in it. That would be one way of looking at it. I mean, there are many other ways. You know, you, you can talk about it in many ways. But that, I think, would be a fundamental way in decreasing suffering worldwide is that people should expand their vision for the sake of all. You know, begin to realize that it is one universe and that you have something special to offer. And then that will allow you to expand. And the interesting thing is other people pick it up. I, I said that one of the ways to increase vision was to you know, keep the company of people with bigger vision. And it's definitely contagious. I mean, if you look at someone who has a bigger vision and you see that they're happier in that bigger vision and they're more contented and that their life is more fulfilling, there's nothing like seeing somebody who looks like they have a good system. You'll tend to follow it. So that's what I would say. I'm so much from working in Africa for the last four years. Yes. And working with people who don't have the opportunity that we may have in expanding our vision because we see or we exclude certain things from our vision whereas some people don't have that luxury in many ways. Poverty, suffering, famine is something that they can't step away from the very fact of where they're living. So from a philosophical perspective I think sometimes we seem to be talking about rich countries rather than on a universal basis because suffering is different, I think, here to other places. And you're right to say our sense of suffering is internal in many ways. But there is suffering which is not internal. Oh, absolutely. There is deprivation. I mean, it's interesting that we live in a world which, as I understand, there is no need that there should be any deprivation. Again, you know, if you take the, the larger view of the world, there is no need for deprivation if the whole system worked together. So I, I think it still holds, I spoke of this resolution of the wise that all be happy, all be without disease. I, I think in whatever way one can do to inspire that that should be the vision for people. I think the more that this will happen, you know, the absolute intends no deprivation. It's really humanity as, as a group, we're doing it to ourselves like. So, and we pay the price. Anyone else? You said that that which we find admirable in others is potentially inherent within ourselves. Yes. I've also read that that which we find hugely distasteful in others, or works to this effect, is also inherent in ourselves. If we look hard enough, we'll find it in ourselves. How do we augment the former and diminish the latter? 
Well, I, I think it is true that when you look at another person and you ascribe qualities to them, either admirable or distasteful, you're really actually speaking about yourself. Because this may sound a little bit esoteric, but the only thing you have experience of is yourself. So when you look outside, you're actually talking about yourself. So I think you may find that you see somebody and you recognize meanness in them. Now, in essence, you're recognizing that quality of meanness from your own experience. And I think the key is, is really is your common sense will tell you that it's not a useful attribute. So you criticize the other person for it. Well, I think to recognize that what's happening is you're criticizing yourself. Now, criticism never leads to growth. So what one has to do is to encourage the good qualities, which naturally dissolves the negative qualities. So if you were to encourage generosity, in other words, say if you found meanness distasteful, well then practice generosity. Funnily enough, you'll be attracted to generous people. And also, meanness can't really coexist with generosity. So meanness, you find over time, will, will diminish. You can't really get rid of meanness. Meanness isn't there when there's generosity there. So you develop fine qualities. You know, like if you have, a, say, an irritating habit like interrupting people in the middle of sentence. Now, that's something you can sort of say, well, I mustn't interrupt people in the middle. But if you take inherent qualities like generosity and its opposite, well, then you encourage the positive qualities and that naturally dissolves the, the negative one. But I think the key is never to criticize. Encourage the positive and the negative will dissolve. Never criticize. Hi, Michael. Just in what you called your savanna example, it sort of gave a, sort of an ideal picture of how specialized functions could uh, be put to a unity of purpose. Mm. But in that story, which is, was ideal in the sense there was only one of everything, there was yes. one carpenter, there was one shoemaker. And all yes. That. Unfortunately, the way civilization is now at the moment, you probably spend years and years and years trying to become something that will give you a vocation. Like, you, know, you become a carpenter, you become a doctor or whatever. Like, and then you're one of umpteen doctors, and you're in the union, and, and then maybe you get made redundant or something like that. Mm. And um, I have a funny thing, just as the way the society is, is structured, that this whole idea of a specialty of function or, or developing your talent is not really on in a way, in that you have to conform, even if, let's say, you're a brain surgeon or something, you have to conform the way other brain surgeons do their work as well, otherwise you're going to be in trouble or something like that, you know. And um, I wonder, really, is the whole thing, in a way, the way society is structured, is the whole thing, in a way, spoiled for one, in that one never really gets um, to, and a lot of it too, let's say if you're made of dunder or something like that, and the whole thing of just making a living, and it's really, the whole thing just turns into a mad scramble just to keep ahead of the posse financially and mm. that sort of thing. That ideal situation, as, as described in Savannah's story, that just never comes your way. You're never really offered that opportunity to lend mm. your unique expertise mm. in a situation that mm. needs it so much. Would you say that is, one of the, is a sort of a common tragedy, if you like, that's, that's present in our civilization now? What strikes one really is that I, I think what's probably the, the real tragedy is that we do not 
appreciate how valuable we are. If you take the sort of unity of purpose and sort of specialization of function, that I think, you know, you've, you've two things which are missed. One is the unity of purpose. So we, we, we do not tend to see life as having a, a unified will behind it. You know, we spoke earlier on about the will of the absolute is bliss, prosperity, freedom for all. That is the will of the absolute, which is unitary. And if you take the Savannah story, the way it's described, all the people wanted happiness for everybody. And in that way, then, their unique function evolved and, and served the unit as a whole. I think what happens with us is that we forget this unity of purpose. And we also forget that we have unique qualities. When you talk about unique qualities, then there are two aspects. One is a particular aptitude. In other words, one might have an aptitude to be an artist. I have a son who wants to be an artist. You know, there would be a sort of a slight inclination here to sort of say, you know, well, I mean, I've spoken to him about, you know, why don't you think of doing architecture? And I think to some degree behind that is a certain concern about security for my son. And yet at the same time, when I was growing up, I could see the same thing with my parents. They didn't want me to uh, take risks, which I wanted to take, which I did take, but they didn't want me to take them. You know, they, they wanted me to do that which was secure and safe. So a lot of our lives are governed by looking for security for me. So it might be better if we were to follow our natural talents, in other words, like this boy wanting to be an artist, and look to have unity of purpose. So in other words, that if your art was dedicated to serving humanity, then I think one's vision would be big enough to direct you to your goal. I think to some degree, we think of ourselves as very small little fish fighting for a few little crumbs at the bottom of the pile. And I think that attitude is sort of self-fulfilling. So really what you're saying is one should never consider oneself redundant. One it's isn't. a terrible term, isn't it? Redundant. Absolutely. Well, one isn't. Is redundant. One, one does yeah. have a function. Yeah. And yet you hear in the news every evening so many people have been declared redundant. Yes. You know, yes. if one was to take that to heart. Mm. And a lot, a lot, a lot of people mm. do, actually. Mm. Yeah. And not only, you know, are they fulfilling them, trying to fulfill themselves, but to have that family unit as well. But I, I think if we could connect with this unity of purpose, I, I think that plus the, the, the specialization or the, or the uniqueness of our talent, I think it would change our view of life. But you want to put the two of them together, you know. <laughs> I think if you were talking about your unique talent without the unity of purpose, then you'd become arrogant. So there has to be this unity of purpose. Thanks, Mike. Just maybe going back again to your Savannah example and the group or the individuals all contributing to the group. Mm. In life now, the way things are, are becoming, and we have this kind of really global village now, where it's a lot more difficult now for the individual's contribution to be seen uh, because there's so many links within a chain now. Whereas that in a smaller group, perhaps the example you were giving there, mm. where you would have 
an individual making a shoe or something for his neighbor, you know, the kind of cause and effect then is obvious. Mm. Whereas if you have somebody working, say, in a, making cars and they assemble a carburetor or something mm. like that, you know, they don't really see the effect. The car goes out and it's sold, but you don't see that effect. So I'm, I'm just wondering in this kind of modern world that we're living in now, can we really appreciate what we contribute? One of the things that struck here was that if you take reason and love as being two fundamental characteristics of a human being, there's enormous potential in us to use reason. In other words, to be reasonable people. And there's all, also enormous potential in us to be full of love. Now, if you take those two aspects and say you had a person who was reasonable and loving, I, I don't mean in the sloppy sense, but it was sort of, you know, was caring towards others. I think the effect of such a person would be enormous. In other words, like if you take any one of us here, we come in contact with so many people day by day that if one person in this room was a truly reasonable person, in other words, they used reason and was truly had love in their hearts, I think the effect of such a person would be phenomenal. And that's regardless of whether they made carburetors or were redundant. I don't think it would matter. I think still the power of, of being a reasonable person, the power of being uh, a person with love in your heart would be phenomenal. And I think that that would express itself through your uniqueness then, you know, because like we are unique. Like if you want to connect with your uniqueness, I think you, you have to come under the guidance of reason and under the guidance of love. And then your uniqueness manifests in situations by virtue of your willingness to be reasonable and your willingness to be open-hearted. I think that perhaps I'm limiting myself here on my example. Mm. Like somebody who makes carburetors could regard themselves now as great carburetor makers and that's what they contribute to the world. But from what you're saying there, in actual fact, what we need to be looking at is a much kind of a, a wider contribution, you know, not to be limiting ourselves to providing a good carburetor. Absolutely, yes. Like a, a man who makes carburetors could be the wisest man in the world. You know, you don't have to be uh, in a university to be the wisest man in the world, or you don't have to be in an ashram to be the wisest man in the world. Your uh, contribution is potentially unlimited and unique. Let's put it this way. Even if you made carburetors with love and with reason, I think you'd be unique. So, in a way, the, the actual job description is really only the place where your life is lived. It, it sort of sets a, a location for where your influence or your input into life takes place. As you'll see in any office or any factory, I mean, you can have somebody there who does enormous good by virtue of their approach to things, or somebody there who's very destructive by virtue of their um, attitude. That's certainly been my experience. That... Okay. Thanks very, Thanks very much. Would you say that most of us go through life without ever really finding our true purpose? I'd say to an extent, yes. I think most of us go through life living at a fraction of our potential. 
speaker included. <laughs> if you take that the potential for a human being is, is phenomenal, you know, when you take the great people that we come across or, or read about, you know, the Mother Theresa's or Martin Luther King's or, you know, Shankaracharya's or whoever, you know, there's phenomenal potential in a human being. And that potential is in every one of us. Now, the reality is, or the, the, the practical situation, is that we are more concerned with our limits than with our potential. And I suppose it would be fantastic if tonight had some minor little impact in terms of switching our attitude to really sort of saying, in what way can I realize my full potential, you know, in terms of serving everybody, rather than being stuck in how small I am. In fact, the more you take the negative thing and look at your limits, the more insecure you become. Where if you start looking at the sort of unity of purpose with specialization of function, a huge world opens up. If you said to put a measure on it, I'd say all of us live at probably, you know, 0.05% of our potential. Each of us has the potential to be enormous. And all that's needed is to adhere to reason and love and develop vision. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> For that alone, it's been worth it. <laughs> Very good. Anyone else? Very good. Well, thank you very much. I would hope that one gets some sense that each of us has something special to offer. And I would hope you take that with you. Thank you very much. Thank you.